this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights and expert comments from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, M&S, Pret, and WPP, just to name a few. We focus on six key areas of marketing, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data and analytics. So if you were looking to upskill yourself or your team for just two and a half hours each week and get access to a network with our industry's giants through our live sessions, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty, for now, enjoy the show. Good morning, good evening, good night to everybody. Um, and welcome to another episode of the Places Will Go show. Now today on the show, we really do have a renowned columnist, consultant, and strategist, Colin Lewis. Colin is one of the most highly thought of people in our industry, and his insights into the world of e-commerce, marketplaces, and direct-to-consumer are the ones that really have earned him his reputation, although he goes far beyond that. He is also on the Digital Advisory Board of eConsultancy, a judge on Marketing Master's Awards by Marketing Week, and a guest lecturer at a number of prestigious universities. Colin was himself a CMO and marketing director, having worked for brands such as OpenJaw, FlyBMI, and 118118. So he's a man who's not only a big thinker, but he's also a big doer as well. He's had an international career. Gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name the, the countries that have spanned countries such as the UK, Ireland, Singapore, Egypt, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Japan, and lastly, China. I wonder if I've missed out on any. I'm sure Colin will tell us. And finally, Colin is actually currently working on a book, and it's called How to Be a Great Marketer. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more about that. And hopefully he's going to share a few hints and tips along the way and give us some nuggets from that book as well. So look, on that note, I just want to say a warm, massive welcome to Colin Lewis this morning on the show. It's amazing to have you on, Colin. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Richie, for that incredible introduction and uh, great to, uh, to be here. And thanks to Mark as well. Uh, that there is actually a connection with Mark and myself, which you probably don't realize, but he was in 118 before me, and people spoke incredibly highly of Mark. So I'm actually just kind of following in his footsteps. Uh-huh, well, you're, you're, too, you're too kind, Colin. I, I'm not sure if it was my finest hour, 118, 118, but I definitely, it's definitely a memorable experience. Or it was uh, it's, I'm thinking of writing a column on it, but uh, I'm not sure. I might kind of uh, find myself in, uh, you know, uh, up against, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, needing some lawyers as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Colin, uh, Colin uh, rarely stutters, by the way. So this was an interesting one. When he yeah, I think that. we're both feeling the same thing there, Colin. Let's <laughs> we are. <laughs> let's, let's, let's move on. Uh, but the last time, fantastic to have you on the show. The last time we... We're in company was um, actually in Dubai helping Richie launch his book. It seems like a lifetime ago. And so to, to get us started, 2022 feels different, feels like a different energy. Um, what, what, what's emerging for you in, in 2022? Well, I, I, I 100% corroborate that. It feels like a different world. Uh, and obviously, what uh, certain things have been happening the last few weeks uh, as we come out of COVID and then the, to potentially a new kind of way of thinking about the world. Um, I have to say, uh, if I compare, say, any time last year, not just like this time last year, there's been an explosion of what I call, uh, I'll just call it in the wider sense, opportunity for almost everybody I know. 
And now it's kind of about selection and, and fit rather than, well, I'll, I'll do this because I, I might need the money or these people are interesting. No, no, it's actually just like I've got to select. And it's been right across the board for me personally, but also for everybody I know. Well, what a lovely observation. And I suspect you're kind of linking it back to things like the great resignation and, and elements like that, where there's just so much more choice out there. And uh, it feels like a supplier's market at the moment when we think about talent. Um, so that's that's interesting. But one of the things that you did mention just pre, pre-call in the in the rehearsal was just all around the, the role of luck that's played in, in your world. Um, I'd love to get a, a sense from you as to how that's played out. Um, in in careers or how more generally in your space, but more, more generally in, in, in other people's worlds, the role of luck? Uh, well, people kind of poo-poo the idea of luck, um, but it's not, it, it's mainly because their view on luck says that it's kind of like some sort of favorable, favorable thing happened to you. And it's not really like that. It's just to a, sometimes the planets align. Now, you, but you've got to do the work to get the planets to align uh, for you. And I, I can think of two or three particular moments. One is particularly, uh, I can remember the date. It was, uh, it was uh, around September, about 25 years ago. I had emigrated to Australia as a little whippersnipper. Um, to say wet behind the ears, I mean, uh, was the understatement of the year. Naive and slightly foolish and definitely very, you know, sort of ignorant of the world. And, uh, but I was pretty ambitious and I knew what I wanted. And I said, what I want is I want to work, say, in the travel business and I want to work for a big brand. Mm, and, uh, but I had no credibility, no real experience and no money. And um, so I said, well, what do I do? And when you, when you have to eat, uh, you know, you kind of get fairly driven. So I applied, I think for, I think it was, I counted at the time around 300 roles in a period of about six months. And I ended up doing about 50 interviews. And then eventually in September, uh, this particular year, September, the September of the year, I found a job that I wanted to apply for, but at the back in the wrong place of the newspaper. And then I end up getting an interview. And then when I'm talking to people doing the interview, I say, why did you put your ad in the wrong place? And they said, no, no, we got that wrong. You are one of the few people who happened to find the ad. And I was like, okay. Then I go and... Um, I'm talking and I get to know the PA to the general manager. And um, after I got off of the job and I started in November, I was talking to her and I said, uh, what was the situation with the job? Like, how, how, how did, why did you pick me? And she said, well, actually what happened was because you were actually quite uh, friendly and charming to me on the phone. Um, I suggested to the boss that of the last two, you were the best one to have. And then I found three months later that the other general manager of the two interviews I had said, no, don't hire him. He's no use. And so on these little fine things, things happened because I became a product manager in Thomas Cook and I stayed there for eight years, worked around the world with them. And it kind of really made me as an individual. But it was a very, very fine line between success and failure. But it was actually the 300 applications and the 50 interviews that got me there that made me have that little bit of luck. Yeah. But what happens is we just see the final bit there and we don't see the 300 interview or the 300 job applications. And then like fast forward, I don't know, it was about 10 years later uh, to number two moment of opportunity. And, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had, say, a, a long down period in my career, which we'll talk about. I had a long down period in my career. And finish my MBA, come out from the MBA, and it's the same thing. I'm like, oh, this is the same thing that's happening before. I, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning my wheels here. Oh, I need to apply for a load of roles, do a load of role applications, and 
even ones that where people were saying, well, you're too overqualified. So in the July, I applied for one role. I was vastly overqualified for it. And the guy who's interviewing me said, you're too qualified for this role. Why, why are you applying for it? Yeah, like, what well, you, you, you can never work for me. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of opportunistic. I, I'd like the company. Two months later, a phone call comes in, and it's from the chief exec's assistant and said, uh, we want you to come in. Uh, you're down to the last two. The guy you uh, interviewed you will be reporting to you, and uh, can you speak for half an hour in three days' time? And I was like, wow, okay. And I end up getting the role again, down to the last two, but wouldn't have even had my hat in the ring if I hadn't applied for this other role. And the, the, the reason I say this is the exact kind of same thing happened. That little moment of luck, little thing swung it in my direction, but the work was done six months earlier, yeah. as yeah. in the set of applications, the, 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 the rehearsal to do the interviews, then doing the interviews. So, I mean, the takeaway for everybody here is the moments of luck, you kind of make a little bit of your own luck. It's it's the work leading up to the luck that you you go say, oh, I just got lucky. Well, actually, no, it was the previous six months was the previous year. Do you know, can I just, just jump in there for one second? Um, I watched a lovely talk by Stephen Bartlett just a couple of nights ago, and he talked about the role of micro moments in your life and the, the way that they can lead an impact and make an impact. And his, his lovely example was sort of sitting on a plane and... Um, spotting a celebrity and all of a sudden he walked up to the celebrity and got a very sharky response or snarky response and uh, that obviously then created his impression and then he went on to write about it and of course now the the voice that he has a few years later is nothing what he had you know when, when he was in that experience but he still remembered it years and years later he remembered that moment um, and that shaped his perception of that individual and then of course now he's got a voice all of a sudden that matters um, and I just re reminded me of when you talked about that conversation with the PA and the friendliness that you probably came up with it with, which made all the difference. So I think it's uh, every, everything matters. And, you know, it's not like I'm some sort of saint who does this the whole time. Like there are moments where I'm like, oh, you know, I, I, I forget it. You know, I forget that this is actually the key thing. And, you know, uh, just from a pure corporate sort of worldview, if anybody out there is thinking your best friends are the financial director, the financial controller, and the person, if there is a person working on reception, they are best friends because that's how you find out who things go on and that's how you make sure your budget is <laughs> looked after as well. Uh, so uh, it pays to be charming. Yeah, everything matters. Uh, love that. I mean, it's, um, I think it was Jack Nicholas, wasn't it, who said that, mm. yeah, says I'm lucky, but the more I practice, the luckier I get. It's so it's it's not sliding doors or Truman Show. It's a lot of effort that goes behind. Um, what, what really struck me though, Colin, is you talk about being sort of slightly wet behind the ears back in the day. I mean, that, that's such an antithesis of how I know you because you're so experienced. And in the digital advisory board that we both sit on, you you more than anybody bring a true global perspective. Uh, so I'm just curious to know what what a, a global career, how important being global in your perspective has been in your career. Because more than many, as Richie outlined, you've really done the world. Uh, yeah. Well, the first thing uh, I'll say to people listening to this thing, if you get a chance to work outside your home country, you should. Uh, and I don't care where it is, but I want you to do it. And it, it pays off and it has sort of things that happen to you that you don't realize. The first thing uh, I realized, because I'd grown up as a teenager in Ireland in the 1980s, and Ireland in the 1980s was a sort of backward, sort of church-dominated, uh, just a, a, a sort of a very sort of small-minded community. And I lived in London for a couple of months, and I was like, oh, 
oh, people are different. They have to have a different kind of worldview. All oh, right, okay. And then I emigrated to Australia, and it, I had this kind of moment of realization of like, I speak English, they speak English, but they have a completely different perspective on the world. And it was like, oh right, maybe my perspective and what I grew up with, maybe that isn't quite true. And um, what happened was then on the back of that was like this moment of like your worldview, how you see the world is, yes, it's nature and nurture, but it's probably wrong, or at least it's just one dimensional based on your orientation. And that's why I encourage people to um, work abroad, no matter where it is. And because uh, Mark and myself work in a, in, in a company, 118, we had experience. I particularly had on the ground experience in France, on the ground experience in Switzerland and on the ground experience in, in the UK, obviously, and in Ireland. And the experience on the ground with a very similar brand and how we went to market was totally different. So what you get good at is you get good at understanding other people and listening to other people by working abroad. It, it permeates all your career for the rest of your career. And also, there's a funny thing that happened to me. Uh, I ended up working in Japan, Indonesia, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And it was because I was an emigrant. And they said, because you are a person going into these countries, you're not British, you're not American, you're not Australian, you have no baggage, inverted commas, um, you'll be our person on the ground and you can kind of nose around in Cairo, nose around in Jakarta, nose around in Tokyo, and you'll find the information we need to know. And you'll be buddies with everybody and they'll tell you everything anyway over dinner and over lunch. And so you become a different person. You realize that when you're in your own home ground with your own people, you act a certain way. But working abroad gives you the freedom to be maybe a little bit more you or a different version of you um, that you can bring to light. And so it's 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 much more subtle than you think. It's not just like, hey, I'm, I'm you know going abroad to have a good time. It's a thing that actually changes your worldview perspective, and it, it has completely changed my perspective because I can now see when I meet people from anywhere, I can kind of like see their worldview almost immediately. I've been to about, I think it's 70 countries. And uh, when I get there, it's kind of like, I almost always feel at home everywhere because I'm like, I'm just nosy and curious. <laughs> I absolutely love that perspective, Colin, honestly. And, you know, I would, and funny enough, going through a sort of a, um, thoughts in my mind around an international career myself and, and what we're doing at School of Marketing. And it's just so relevant. So it really permeated and, and hit home. Um, you know, there's, there's one reason, actually, by the way, which is why I think, and, and we'll touch on it later, now is the greatest time ever to work in marketing. But because of all these tools and because of the th tool we're using right now, Zoom, you can even have an international career uh, from your bedroom as well, which is also <laughs> very interesting. However, I do believe you should be on the ground as well. That's really, really the, the way to think about it. It's not just uh, from the third, from the comfort of your bedroom. 100%. So, you know, Colin, clearly you're one of the world leading strategists and and consultants in this area but that takes a huge wide network and i'd just love to get your take on how you are able to foster and forge connections and relationships and deep meaningful relationships with people in order to kind of create this international career that you've had um well i i i, I don't know is the answer uh, uh but i can point to a couple of things one is uh, is this idea, uh, and again, it's a, it's a thing that I would encourage people to think through. It's uh, it's an idea called unique ability, and uh, I've spent a lot of time um, going to coaching programs and and being coached. And one of the best ones I've had is a, from a, a guy called Dan Sullivan, who runs Strategic Coach, and he has this idea called unique ability. 
And the way to think about it is, is what you come from the factory with that you find incredibly easy. Like, in other words, what you were born with and what comes naturally to you that other people kind of find hard and look at you. And so it turns out that uh, what I come from the factory with is I'm naturally curious. I'm interested in other people and other worldviews. And um, I kind of have a, I can see another person's perspective. And that enables you to sort of like, uh, once you can kind of recognize your unique ability, then you can go and start actually tapping into that. And because I'd lived abroad, I automatically was like innocent and naive and I would talk to everybody. Uh, and then what I found out years later that this idea is actually already codified. It's called the, the, the power of weak ties, as in I know lots of people and I can make an impression on those people when I meet them. And then I like people. So it's pretty easy for me to do it. And I'm also nosy and curious about people. So uh, that's how you can actually do it. Now, there is once you start tuning into this idea of unique ability, um, you do have to do something with it. You can't just go and say, well, I'm chatty and I like talking to people. Um, no, no, you've actually got to actually genuinely be interested in people. You've got to genuinely look for their perspective and so on. And I suppose the other thing is uh, I'm actually, um, my, my um, if I look at my, you know, hit tips for everybody watching here, if I look at my family on my mother's side, they never like the, my mother will talk to the wall and and still get a conversation out of it. And my all my uncles on their side are not just talk to the wall people, but they're also very funny and they to tell lots of jokes. And uh, so it's kind of like once you start kind of seeing where you come from, tap into that kind of origin and use it. Uh, the other thing, you know, and I think that, that the kind of one point though, I'll leave this on because I'm, uh, it, it, it's something I'm very passionate about. It's this idea of creating value, and this is something like i heard about the idea a few but 10 years ago and it's like yeah that's the way to capture it um we we see a lot of value extraction in the world whereby people are you know trying to pull something out and, and trying to get something whereas the world of value creation is where in every single moment you meet people you're trying to create opportunity something out of nothing if you will so if you take say the school of marketing being the prime example of that it's a total value creation mechanism value for the school value for the students value for the teachers it's not extracting value from anybody else it's creating value and that would be the thing i would say to people here think of yourself as a value creator it's not about what i can get from mark and richie it's how i can create value from mark and richie once you have that mindset then the world becomes a lot easier yeah well there you go i mean big up for, for all the great work you're doing richie in school of marketing um really interesting Connie. you talk about what you come from the factory with i've never heard that expression before mm -hmm. but i suppose you know we all have something that's innate in us I just want to sort of flip that on its head, though. And as you've gone on your travels and your career has developed, can you think, can you describe how your skill sets have evolved over time? What, what are the layers that you've added on top as you've built your career? Well, I want to start out to say one thing is when I started out, when I was 21, 22, I was a total daydreamer. And now I look back, I'm just embarrassed at how lazy I was. Yeah. And I just, it's just shocking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so don't be like me when I was 21, 22, a total daydreamer thinking the world's going to come to him. OK, um, now where I am and what I say to anybody in my own kind of training classes, workshops or and as in most cases, people coming to me for career advice is it's really now today, particularly it's all about skills. And 
the they call them hard skills and soft soft skills. I don't like to call it that, but we, we'll use that nomenclature, those labels to to kind of use it. So, the first part is if you call them the the soft skills, we call I call them interpersonal skills. That's the first place to start because if people don't like you, they're not going to work with you. Okay, uh, so start off with like developing your internal skills, developing your, sorry, your interpersonal skills and engaging other people and talking to other people and understanding their worldview. But in terms of uh, hard skills, and that's really what I call the ability to do something either with technology or with words or uh, you know, get a campaign at the door. Um, how my own career developed was I started realizing back in the day that I was actually very interested in words and very interested in kind of creating things using words. And so I was obsessed with the words used in advertising. I was obsessed with the thinking used in headlines and so on. So I became quite good at actually looking at something saying, that's going to work. That's not going to work. Yep. And I sort of developed this kind of capability of looking at a campaign and going, Okay, I can see the mind of the consumer. I can see this ad. I can see the whole thing joining together. I can see the media plan. I can just create an idea in my head and go, that's going to work. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that is kind of my kind of, if you will, superpower, which is just join the dots really quickly and go, that's going to work. That's not going to work. And so what you want to do, we talk about coming from the factory. If you like words, then you delve into words and then maybe you can become a copywriter. Maybe you can write amazing copy for email marketing. Maybe you can write calls to action for Google AdWords. Maybe you can create amazing Facebook ads. Yeah. So that's what I say. The whole thing kind of joins together as an integrated thing. In terms of other skills, um, I uh, didn't realize this, but um, I was actually because I, I, I was quite a shy person. I'm still quite a shy person. Um, and so I didn't think I was going to be a speaker. But actually, what happened was I found that the this this uh, the ability to speak again, what people perceive as soft skills, was actually quite a hard skill. The ability to speak and communicate, actually, it's better to go and say, "I want to be a, a, a persuader, a persuader," because in marketing, the key thing is you got to be able to persuade the team, you got to be able to persuade the management, you got to be able to work with agencies. Instead of being a speaker, I want you to think in terms of being a persuader. And it turns out I end up being a good persuader because I like the words. I like direct marketing. I like direct response. I understand how to use these things and therefore I became a persuader. And so, uh, you know, I'm just, you know, I know I'm rambling on a bit, but it's just kind of like understand what you're good at, combine it with other things. And I suppose that's really the way I want to wrap up on this point on skills is what matters is the skill combination. Um, there's, a, there's a guy, uh, Cal Newport has written about this, which is this idea of um, a skill stack. And I, it's something I really believe passionately in. It's fine starting out in your career that you're excellent at, you know, say one particular thing. And, you know, it could be one industry, it could be one topic, you could be great in email marketing. What if you layer on other things on top of that? What if you layer that you're a good speaker, a good persuader? What if you actually really dive into the world of copywriting and then you can write great ads as well as great emails? And what if you then understand the email marketing tech? Well, then you've got tech, then you've got writing, and then you've got you know, calls to action. And what if you went and read all the old direct mail marketing books from the 1950s? What if you really got involved in the topic? Then you're kind of unbeatable because you've got a skill stack. 
rather than being a one-dimensional person. So I'm obsessed with your skill stacking. And when I talk to people about careers, I say, what skills? Tell me the hard skill you've got right now that is a thing that other people can't do. And now I want you to build them out into a stack. Absolutely love that, Colin. That's mm -hmm. su that's such a cool way of thinking about it. But so many things you said that just really resonated. I mean, I love the, the thought of being a persuader as opposed to a speaker. That's actually in many ways, sort of turning it into that value creating sort of mm. dimension as you as you spoke about, which I think is really insightful. And a bit, a bit, a bit of uh, industry sort of like trivia, there's a book called The Hidden Persuaders by Vance Packard from 1957, which was all about like how TV ads have got these subliminal messages that are convincing the audience and making them do crazy things. So even as a person interested in that marketing and advertising, you should read that book to see how, how crazy people are and how crazy they think advertising actually works. But that's a that's an aside. Find it, find it in the library, guys. 1957. Yeah. Um Colin, I mean, in addition to the, the sort of hard soft skill dimensions, and clearly, you know, you've you've been able to create your own very impressive skill stack in that sense. But what you've also chosen is a, a life where you're not necessarily in a full-time role. In fact, you've been there, you've done that, you've, you know, you've climbed the ladder to the highest heights in marketing, um, but now you're sort of working in a different way. So I'd love to get your take on perhaps the, the, the different dimensions between uh, corporate life, full-time roles versus going into a world of being more of a consultant, thought leader, persuader, as it is, and, and some of the... Uh, the pros and cons that perhaps you've you've experienced with either and both. Well, um, you know, let's look. Let's just move, zoom out uh, for a second. Um, the way for everybody to think here is that careers are not some permanent upward trajectory, always to the moon. Okay, careers are essentially a a sine wave, and they do this. Okay, there's times when you're you have these sort of the peak of inflated expectations where you believe you're 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 on a rocket to the moon. Uh, and then there's the trough of disillusionment. And I've done both. Uh, and I've been, you know, the, the person lying in the gutter looking at the stars, if you will. Um, and so today, over the last, you know, say year, since uh, year, year and a half, I've been doing a lot of work working with companies around the world, some very big brands, particularly around e-commerce, but also around strategy. And the reason I love this part of my career is that I'm seeing inside many organizations, seeing how to think and understanding how to think. Uh, and I'm having to up my game um, to go and work with these people because I'm dealing with some very high caliber people. Um, and if I take one particular organization, um, it's been you know a great quid pro, quo, quid pro quo for both of us where I'm learning from them, they're learning from me. Um, but the takeaway for me is, uh, for a lot of these companies, they're amazing in some bits and they're not so good in other bits, which kind of makes you go, okay, maybe maybe I do know what I'm talking about kind of thing. So it's kind of important to, it's a good thing to do it when you see inside these various organizations and you see, right, okay, I'm learning a lot and understanding, you know, how, how their worldview is. Um, when I'm working in corporate, um, I equally like that as well. Um, it's because it's it's a little more narrowed down and your focus is a little more focused. Um, the upside of that is you can do something for a longer period of time and you can see how it's going to pan out over three years, whereas what I'm doing typically now is three to six months yeah. in two or three organizations at any one time. Um, and the big difference for me, though, is 
I my 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 the the, the I work probably harder. I'm working, you know, more hours per day and so on, but I don't have to go to meetings I don't want to go to. And that is a big win for me. And the other thing I, which I'm sure Mark, uh, well, I know you know this, Richard, but I'm sure Mark has done this as well as the months of doing budgets are completely irrelevant to me. I don't have to do that anymore. So I free up a lot of time as well. Uh, it was always my big bugbears. Like how many times do I have to do reforecasts and budgets here? Personal bugbear. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to go back into corporate. Um, and just as you get older in your career, you go and say, um, there's certain things you will do and certain things that, like you say, that's not for me. And, uh, you know, my next phase of my career, uh, the way I would characterize it, if I, if I move into working for corporate again, will be, be for a company with ideally a, a very interesting mission with um, a, a chief exec that you can really, uh, as a friend of mine calls it, that you want to serve. I've been lucky to have a couple of great CEOs where I'm like, I really want to work for them. I really want to, you know, be with that person and work for them. And a friend of mine calls it, as I say, a person you want to serve. It's a great line. Love it. Um, peaks of disillusionment. That uh, troughs, troughs, yeah, troughs of disillusionment. You, you also talked previously, Colin, about down periods. Yes. Um, so. So, you know, we, Richie, yourself and myself, you know, any career is going to have its highs and lows. Um, I'm just interested in so what, what have been some of the low points for you? And in particular, how, how have you bounced back? How do you find your resilience? Um, yeah, uh, as I say, the, 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 the careers move in sideways. And that down period can be much longer than you think. And... So it was a period about 20 years ago um, where I actually I, 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 I left I left Australia and Asia and moved back to Ireland. In fact, I used to when I was going for job interviews, uh, people would say to me, so Colin, why did you leave uh, Australia? And I say, yeah, you know, yeah, I had a beautiful apartment and, and ama- on the beach and an amazing job and a beautiful girlfriend. You're damn right. Why did I actually leave Australia? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, I, I was back living in Ireland and I essentially had to rebuild my life from scratch. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, everybody had moved on and I was doing everything from scratch again. And a lot of it was like internal warfare in my mind going, why did I do this? Why did I go and have to reboot everything? And also the other thing is I had such great experience abroad is that actually everybody was like, well, that's not really that relevant here. So as a result, I ended up having to work in startups. And I worked in a couple of e-commerce startups around 2001. And those who you with long memories on this call will remember that was the end of the dot-com boom. So instead of becoming, you know, this time next year, Rodgers will all be millionaires. It was like the long slog of of post-dot-com boom uh, working with startups. And that kind of, you know, it played out over a longer period, which I'll come back to. But over three and four year period, it was it was tough. And when I decided to go get a new job, I couldn't get arrested. I mean, literally, I couldn't get arrested because uh, the, 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 the company ran out of money. And there I am in the middle of what, 2004, 2003. And I, I, I literally can't get an interview. And I'm going into these job interviews. I'm like, but, but you know, I'm, I'm really nice and I'm really good and blah, 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 you know? And they're like, nah, you, you haven't worked in FMCG, Colin, or you haven't worked in the bank, you know? And I, but I've worked in, you know, Sydney and I've worked in, and they're like, yeah, but you haven't done this. And um, then 
I got a job working for a, a trade association, the GSM Association. They helped set them set up their conference in Singapore, and I did a lot with their conference in Barcelona. It's great, except nine months into the role, they shut the office down in Dublin, and I was left high and dry. And also, it was actually six weeks into the MBA they'd agreed to pay for. And so I was six weeks into the MBA, um, which took up two full days of my week every week for nine, month, for nine months. And um, so I was uh, nine months in a job. So I was unemployable and I had no money. And um, so I had to remortgage the house to the tune of 30 grand uh, to go and pay for the MBA because they had said, good luck, you're not getting any money from us. And I also couldn't get, couldn't get arrested. Uh, because they were like, well, you just lost the previous role and we couldn't give you a role the previous time. And so there was five years of like in the trough of disillusionment. And it can take longer than you think to turn things around. And you can be a good person and you can be a humble person. You can be a educated person and stuff still doesn't go your way. And the way I kind of see it now is in a philosophical sense is, is well, well, first of all, there's a pragmatic sense and there's a philosophical sense, which is, I think, first of all, careers move in sine waves and uh, they work in around seven or eight year periods. And the reason I say that is, um, you know, we leave university if, if, we've done, if we have gone to university or whatever, and we have sort of 22 to 30. And that's kind of a seven or eight year period. And you're kind of living on the coattails of being young and enthusiastic. And then at 30, 31, you're kind of like you're out and about and you're on your own and you can't be going blaming your parents. You can't be blaming, you know, your whatever. You, know, you can't be blaming the fact you didn't get a tricycle when you were five to not get that role. Yeah. And it turns out that that's when people get in touch with me and say, Colin, what should I do in my career? It's when they're 31, 32. That's where the majority of calls come in. And then. The next phase is then they hit 40, 41, which is seven or eight years later. And they're like, yeah, I've got another problem. And then um, as most recently as last Friday, I'm talking to a person who's 48, 49. And they're like, I've got, you know, so I see careers moving in seven to eight year periods. And that was a seven to eight year period for me where I was like in the trough of disillusionment. And it's just the way things are. You're going to have downsides and you've got to fight your way out of it. Well, what an incredible story, particularly of persistence and drive, you know, and, and as you said earlier, you know, when, when you're looking to, to eat, you're going to pretty be damn well driven. <laughs> and, and I suspect that, um, you know, all of us can take a little bit of that fighter mentality, regardless of where we are in that career to push that little bit more forward. It was a, a wonderful mentor of mine who once said that you always need to have a healthy paranoia about your career simply because you never know when that, that peak and trough will hit next. But I loved yeah. it. I loved it, just, it doesn't have to be about, the thing is you also take it personally that it's about you, but it actually turns out it's happening to everybody. You, it's just not on the front page of the, of the trade press. It, like when you talk to people like I do, and they tell you their stories, um, you know, uh, you hear the same themes everywhere. In fact, uh, the, 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 there's a thing I did about 18 months ago, just at the start of COVID, a friend of mine, Giles, said, when I do this talk, called Isolated Talks and, um, you know, it was about what we're talking about, careers. And I just spoke off the cuff for about 20 minutes and uh, uh, on a video and bang, immediately within like a week of it going live, I got people from all over the world getting in touch with me going, that really spoke to me, Colin. And I'm like, what? That, that, that little kind of off the cuff thing. And it turns out it's, a, it's, a, it's what I've explained there 
is such common experience. It's like it's 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 not just me. It's not me, this middle-aged white guy living in Dublin. It's an experience people in Sydney, people in Germany, people in the US, people in Sri Lanka, people in Colombia have. I know because they all got in touch with me. Mark's on mute. Again, <laughs> background noise. Um, you, you mentioned about uh, a desire to serve. You know, you're, you're very familiar with Agile and there's this notion of servant leadership. I just, I'd just like to hear you talk a bit more about what it is because that says, you know, uh, that brings an element of humility. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something everybody's mentioned explicitly, I think, in all the talks we've done. Mm -hmm. that, that desire to be of service. So I'd just love to hear you talk a bit more about that. Um, now, I want to preface this, that this makes me sound like some sort of great guy. Uh, that's that's completely the opposite. Anybody who's ever worked for me would be like, you know, that they should never get it, you know? But no, it's more a, as you get older, uh, you start seeing that every single thing, and you know, I, I've done an MBA, I've got a ton of books here around leadership. Most stuff around leadership is complete horseshit, okay? And it's not worth reading. Um, and so I, 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 any books with leadership, I like touch with a, like a very large barge pole, okay? Because when you're in it, it's a totally different thing. Um, and I have worked in, as a team leader in Australia, UK, Ireland, France, numerous places and when you get a bit older you start kind of seeing the world through a slightly different lens and say actually if, if there's any legacy you want to leave it's actually with your team to get them to the next level and build their careers and build them as individuals and sort of like you know kind of mold and guide them if you will and that's kind of one element of service but the other element is you as a person, hopefully choosing the right kind of boss to work with and hopefully, you know, being able to choose the right sort of boss, boss to work with, because that's where you want to be able to sort of bring your sort of capabilities to bear um, because you, you have so much energy while you need to apply it to something you really want to do, ideally. And hopefully it's for a great leader who you want to serve and a kind of wider thing that you want to do to kind of make a change in the world rather than just a random career thing. So, sounds great there, Colin. Colin, I know we're going to be running short of time. And what I really want to do is just dig a little bit into your, your core expertise, your technical skill, as you may call it, which is clearly at the moment around e-com marketplace, D2C. And there obviously is a massive revolution taking shape in this area at the moment. So just love to get your point of view, perhaps on the way you see this landscape evolving over the next one, two years. And as you've been so far, perhaps a few tangible tips that, we, that our listeners can take away from in terms of right. how they can shape the things, shape well, their strategies forward. Yeah. So um, I worked for an e-commerce startup in 2000 and we burned through $70 million worth of venture capital in three and a half years. And so I got to know e-commerce quite well, but when I was a little whippersnipper. And then in 2006, I worked uh, for a small airline, but we were doing a hundred million online. And uh, so I kind of learned it you know, thought everybody knew this stuff and, and they didn't know this stuff, but I thought everybody did. And so the stuff I knew then is still very applicable now around e-commerce, but obviously now it's extended to marketplaces. And the one thing is, it's barely started is the best way to think about it. Pre-COVID, I was like, you know, the voice in the wilderness going, hey, e-commerce marketplaces, they're going somewhere, you know, and everybody's like, no, nah, that stuff will never take off, okay? <laughs> and I was like, oh, and 
like COVID basically kind of changed the, the whole dimension of this. And we now speak in terms of the world as being more omnichannel. But for everybody here is like e-commerce has barely started. The way to think about e-commerce, and this is a quote from a venture capitalist, and he said, marketplaces and e-commerce is the front front end of the internet. It's the internet that kind of we can all access. And less than 10% of GDP globally is already is accessible through a front end like e-commerce and marketplaces. E-commerce has not hit most um, B2B industries. E-commerce has not hit uh, any service industries worth its salt. It's barely started. It's not actually, um, you know, on the way down. It's barely started. Um, so here's a couple of tips for everybody here thinking through e-commerce. First of all, you want to work for a business that has an e-commerce angle to it because e-commerce has barely started number one number two uh, e-commerce is uh, an opportunity for you for your career to build a sort of what's called a moat in your career whereby other people can't touch you uh, you know you've got a skill base why is that well if we take say the world that say mark and myself grew up with which is consumer goods and you know, stuff in stores and i can you know i can lift the thing up and i can handle it and it's like a thing it's hard you know um e-commerce is slightly abstract it's an idea. Like if I look at my Amazon page, it's going to be different to, different to Mark's page, which is different to Richie's page. It's all an abstraction. So it's a world of algorithms and abstractions. And when there's algorithms and abstraction, there is what I call information asymmetry. And that is where you, for your career, you can actually build out a career because it's hard for people to imagine things that are abstract and are run by algorithms. And so therefore, from a technical perspective, if you understand how the algorithms work and you understand abstraction, you can then really create a lot of value for people. So that's why I say, understand marketplaces at a deep level, understand e-commerce at a deep level. So you need to know about copywriting. You need to know about uh, user experience. You need to know about uh, how the Amazon algorithm works, which is different to the Amazon, uh, so Google search engine optimization, different to Amazon SEO. You need to understand retail media or Amazon advertising. Um, you need to understand Google AdWords. It's this combination of things are all entry points into e-commerce. So I, I think I can talk forever, so I'm going to have to stop there. But basically, get involved in e-commerce, get involved in marketplaces. That was awesome. Really so do we, we are, I think we are out of time, but actually, Richie, remiss of us. It would be great just to hear just the headlines of your upcoming book, Colin, just because we, we didn't get into that. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. So I've written this thing called uh, How to Be Great at Marketing, which, of course, is uh, a couple of layers into the title. First of all, it's super hypey and way over the top, which is obviously what marketing is perceived to be, which is all about hype. So that's the idea of the of the over-the-top name. Um, but the headlines, I've written down some of the headlines in the chapters, Get tough on yourself. Uh, turn pro. Uh, think through your uh, links. Uh, this this idea of weak links. Have a beginner's mindset. Um, you know, uh, be coachable, and forget the need to be me. They're the headlines from it. Wow, I like that. Have mm. a beginner's mindset. Mm. That is mm. pretty cool, and I think that's that's so applicable in today's context and in in every in any stage that you are in your career. Um, the need to constantly sort of unlearn and relearn and then sort of redo effectively. It feels like I'm on that trip literally almost every day. So I can, I can totally relate. Colin, it's been such an absolute, absolute pleasure to have you on. I mean, you know, the nuggets that you've shared with our audience today are really second to none. So I'm going to try and just put a few bows on, on some of the key things and themes that I've, I've heard, which have really resonated. Um, unique ability. 
was one that certainly is something that I'm going to be reflective of um, and what comes naturally to you. And then the ability to then build on that through what you term skill stack. And I know you elaborated on the, the differences, hard skills, soft skills, um, the need to be a persuader, not a speaker, which is great. One thing that you mentioned, which I think was a, perhaps you didn't go into any much depth, but something that really hit home was the power of weak ties mm -hmm. and how that fuels relationships. Um, I think that was really a really great thing to, to think about for everyone who's listening in. But how do you create those weak ties, which you can then add value, which was exactly the next thing you said, which is about value creation. So weak ties, value creation feels like a lovely sort of um, symbiotic relationship, as it were. Um, you then talked about stages of your career and the fact that they come in sort of seven or eight year cycles. Um, and I think the peaks and the troughs as part of that is something that we should embrace as opposed to be wary or scared about, but come at it with persistence and come at it with a real tenacity to kind of get through the, the lows because no one is coming to your rescue. Um, you also talked about the, the moat in your career. I love that, that phrase. How do you create a moat which enables you to kind of, you know, be invincible, the one thing that no one can touch and then therefore become very valuable as you go through? And then the last thing I'll talk about or the last thing I'll mention is around the difference between being a pragmatist and, a, and having a philosophical approach to your career as the ability to then kind of, you know, tangibly act to make a big difference, but also come at it from a slightly higher level perspective, recognizing that it's a long, long journey to the moon, as it were, um, as opposed to, um, you know, a linear approach. So I'll stop there. I hope I haven't um, taken away all of Mark's thunder for some of his wrap-up comments, but Colin, an absolute pleasure, honestly. Well, thank you, Richie. Thank, thank you for that. Well, Richie, you, you kind of have, um, but <laughs> let me just see. Let me just talk to what I've appreciated, actually. So, um, as, as I expected, Colin, I've appreciated your worldview. You use the term quite quite a lot um, uh, in terms of understanding others' worldview you talked about. But I think actually you've just given us a worldview um, yourself. Uh, and so just fascinating to hear your perspectives from around the world. Um, so much so much wisdom. The, the other thing is I'm, I'm still clinging to that everything matters. Um, so you've talked about tough times and long troughs of disillusionment. Got that wrong initially, but anyway. Um, but how you make your own luck, and and in the end, there's a work ethic that's required. Uh, you know, where it's too easy to expect that the world will fall in your lap, and you've evidenced that actually everything matters, and some of the moments of luck are actually down to damn hard work. Uh, and I, I also love that what you come from the factory with. It, it's just a very, uh, I think, easy way to understand. You know, maybe even purpose, but you know, basically what we're wired to do. What do we come from the factory with? We can all ask ourselves that question. And many other things as well. I love the notion of being a persuader uh, and um, talking you know, about careers in sine waves, uh, which, is, which is maybe a little bit more comforting than squiggliness, but somewhere between the two lies the truth. But Colin, it's been fantastic to have you on. As ever, your perspective and wisdom, uh, super illuminating. I know it'd be very helpful for everybody listening in. So thanks again. Fabulous to have you on the show. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, guys. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show. It's been great. And thanks for encapsulating everything so well. <laughs>